bring your Bible this morning? All right, glad you got one. If you got one, go ahead and get right into it. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be at today. Go ahead and open it up. Acts chapter 16, we've been seeing over the last couple weeks in Acts chapter 16, God doing some amazing things and changing lives. We've seen it here at our church too, and uh, we rejoice in that. I shared with you uh, for the last couple weeks about 148 kids being sponsored through Compassion International. We had, during the Christmas time, 22 people trust Christ as their Savior. I had a family come to me last week at the door as they were leaving and uh, told me that they, both of their children had trusted Christ that week. They had led them to Christ, a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. And so that's Awesome. I had uh, last week, I heard that there was a guy, a 60 year old man during the service placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's exciting stuff. God's at work. I don't know what he's been doing in your life, but I want to share a truth with you that many people don't want to talk about today. And we're going to talk about it. When God's at work, Satan's at work too. When God's at work, when God's taking ground, there's a battle in this kingdom of light and darkness. When he's taking ground for the kingdom of light, when he's taking ground for his kingdom, uh, Satan doesn't just let that happen. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John chapter 10 and verse 10, because it talks about the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, life to the fullest, that we may enjoy life the way that God intended for it to be lived, depending on what translation you read. But at the very beginning of that verse, it points out there's also an enemy. Satan's referred to as a thief, so the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Wants to ruin your life, wants to rob you of the things God has for you, wants to kill you, ultimately. But Christ came that we could have abundant life. And so when God's at work, Satan's at work too. And so God's been at work in our church and so if he's been at work in your life, you're going to ask, well, what is, what's Satan up to? Because there's opposition to God's mission. And that's what we're talking about today. In Acts chapter 16, we've been seeing that God's been changing people's lives. He's been transforming people. We saw uh, the guys that are leading this ministry. There's Timothy, uh, Luke, Silas, and a guy named Paul. And mostly we've heard from Paul. He's kind of the spokesman of that team. And uh, they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. Don't miss that. That's important. Remember back in verses 6 through 10, they wanted to go to Asia. Nope. Want to go to Bithynia. Nope. And so they're listening, and they go to Europe, and they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. When they get to Europe, Macedonia, Philippi, there's a woman named Lydia, first convert in Europe. She comes to Christ, starts a church in her home, and then it impacts a city. And the city's changed. eventually impacts a country, a region of the world, and the gospel gets to you and to me. It started with one changed life. And Paul and Silas and his team, Timothy and Luke, they go back to that place of prayer. And then last week we saw there's one woman again. This woman's following Paul around. She's demon-possessed. He sets her free so that she's able to fully follow Christ. That's real freedom. And he's changing lives. That's exciting. We could clap. We could get excited and praise God, and we should. But there's opposition, too. And that's what we see this week. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do, but there's opposition. Verse 19, look at it with me, Acts chapter 16. So when the owners of the slave girl, the girl that we saw freed last week, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. That's the first accusation. And are throwing our city into an uproar. Second accusation. Here's how they're doing it. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And look what happens. There's mob violence. They get excited, all reared up. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, the guy who writes this is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He's a physician. He's probably an eyewitness to this. He says it's a severe flogging. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he followed them. He put them in the inner cell, the maximum security, the dungeon. 
fasten their feet in the stocks. Stocks were wood things you'd buckle their feet into. could be used as a torture tool or just for maximum security. Here it appears to emphasize security. And so what do we have? We have these guys. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do. Remember that. And they get falsely accused. Ever have somebody say something about you? It wasn't true. Unjustly tried. They don't get an opportunity to defend themselves. The mob breaks out. They get stripped of their clothes, publicly humiliated, beaten, what's described as a severe flogging, taken to maximum security, thrown into this prison, their feet are locked into the walls, and that's what they get for following God and doing what he wants. Sign me up! Anybody else in? See, a lot of times we have this idea of how life should work. And we know that if people do bad things, then bad things can happen. If you make bad decisions... There's consequences for that. And most of us, we don't like to think about it in the moment, but you know, if you eat chocolate cake before you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning, the scale's probably not going to go down. Okay? That's just, we just know that's how life works. If you break the law, you might get away with it once or twice, but you're probably going to end up in jail. You're, there's bad consequences for bad decisions, and we all think that's kind of how things should work, but we also think the converse of that, that if we do the right thing, if I exercise all the time and I eat the right stuff, then I should be healthy. If I do my taxes, the IRS should leave me alone. If I do good, then good things should happen, is the, the essence of what we're saying. So when somebody eats right, exercises all the time, and they get cancer, we think something's wrong. Like, it, there's been a mistake here. Something went wrong. When we do our taxes and the government doesn't leave us alone, then we are upset. What country do you live in? Do we expect they're just going to leave us alone, right? I'm a good citizen. And so let's take into the realm of our relationship with God. Don't most of us think, God, if I obey you and do what you want, then you should make life easy, comfortable, secure, smooth, like fill in the blank with whatever your thing would be, your thought would be. But essentially, if I do things your way, God, you should do things my way. If I do what you want, you should do what I want. Comfort, security, easiness, smoothness, fill in the blank. So then, what about, and I'm not saying you're perfect, but to the best of your knowledge, you're doing what the scripture says, you're walking by the spirit, you're making decisions that you think God would want you to make, and the wheels fall off on your life. See, thinking that type of thing can ruin your faith. At the very least, you think God's made a mistake, and he's maybe just not powerful enough to fix things. But what happens when you are, to your best you're not, you're walking by the Spirit, you're doing everything that you know of what the Bible says to do, you're not overtly rebelling against God, and then things go wrong. Your spouse doesn't want to reconcile. Your kids won't live for Jesus. Uh, your company's cutting back. You, you get sick. You've been exercising, you've been doing the right stuff, and you get sick. You miscarry. Things just aren't going the way that you hoped they would go in your life. What, what, do you, what do you say then? What do you do then? Now, let me tell you something. This is what I'm saying. I'm not saying this, first of all. I'm not saying if you follow God, he'll ruin your life. I'm not saying if you follow him, that he's going to then make bad things happen in your life. I am saying that if you follow him, if you walk by faith with him, then you have an enemy that wants to destroy you. And so there, are, there is a possibility things will happen because there's opposition to God's mission. That's our big idea today is this. If you will live on God's mission, if you live on God's mission, there will be opposition. And so if you have no opposition in your life, you've got to ask yourself this question. 
Am I not attempting anything for God? Am I neutral ground? Am I Switzerland spiritually? Like, I don't care. The enemy didn't care what's going on with me. It's like, I'm so irrelevant in the way that I'm living my life. That's no effect for the kingdom. No damage against the kingdom of darkness. Because many of you, you know what it's like. As soon as you step out by faith, it's like you have a target on your back. As soon as you try to attempt something for God, then you know the enemy is going to try and devour you, destroy you, steal from you, rob you of the very things that God's been giving you. Because there's opposition to God's mission. Paul says it like this to his, his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, in fact, everyone, who says the Bible's not inclusive, by the way? <laughs> Everyone, not this isn't one group of people. Everyone who wants to live a godly life, in anybody, any circumstance throughout history, everyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There, another way to say this, there will be opposition. Now there's different kinds of opposition, different types of persecution. A lot of it overtly we think about like we see in this passage here. They're beaten, they're thrown in jail, there's physical persecution against them. But there are other types of persecution. Now physical persecution is still relevant. I read this week that they've done studies on this, that on average right now, in, in this point, not hundreds of years ago, right now, 100,000 Christians are killed every year because they're Christians. Not just somebody was killed and they happen to be a Christian, they're killed because of their faith. Others are beaten, some are imprisoned, others you know, kicked out of countries, denied rights, all those types of things. That's physical persecution, and that happens now, today. Now, it might not be our world living here in America. That doesn't mean we don't face persecution. There are other types of persecution. Remember, our battle is not against a government agency or another religion. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And one of the other forms of persecution is sin and temptation. You ever face that one? You want to live by faith? And there's sin and temptation? It's crouching at your door, desires to destroy you. Sometimes our greatest enemy, the desires within us, and Satan knows how to exactly to exploit those weaknesses, those desires. Another form of persecution that we'll face, oftentimes we don't like to talk about this one because we don't understand it and we don't see it, is the spiritual battle that's taking place all around us. Have you ever read the book of Job? Job's life falls apart. He's a rich guy, and he's the most righteous man in his day. Apart from the stuff that we end up reading that he doesn't end up seeing, if he'd just be another rich guy that lived a long time ago and loved God. But what ends up happening in his life is in one day, he loses all of his children. He's got multiple children, loses all of his money. His wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? You'd be better off dead. So curse God, he'll kill you. Just curse God and die. You foolish woman, he says. And God gave us all this stuff. And he doesn't know, though. He goes through the book. There's lots of questions. You know, I've heard one person say this about Job. The problem with Job was Job never read the book of Job. See, Job never saw the stuff that was happening. What was happening in his life was really a, a spiritual battle taking place between God and Satan, and his life was the battlefield. Some of your lives are the battlefield. There's, there's stuff that's just happened. It's bad stuff. It doesn't make sense. It's not necessarily related to decisions you've made. It's just in your life because there's other things taking place. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, so there's a battle taking place. And if we think that we can follow Jesus Christ and say so that he's Lord of our lives and nothing's going to oppose us, how foolish is that? Have you read the Bible? They killed him. And we say that he's Lord, he's master, we do what he says. They murdered him. He says in John chapter 15, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. 
There's going to be resistance. There's going to be opposition. It's just what will happen. And we're looking at this guy here, Paul, who accomplished more for the kingdom. Most of us will dream of attempting for the kingdom. And you get a highlight of his biography in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I won't read it to you, but you can go look at it. And what it ends up saying is this. As far as my enemies that are saying all this bad stuff about me, I live more on mission in my life than they do. That doesn't sound like a very humble thing to say. He says, I'm crazy for talking like this. And he says, let me tell you what it gets me. I've been beaten three times with rods. One of them's in this passage. Five times I've received a flogging from the Jews of 40 lashes minus one. I've been in danger at sea, in danger from bandits. I've been on the run. I know emotional persecution. I know physical persecution. I know all the spiritual persecution. I know all that stuff. It's because of living on mission, because there's opposition to the mission. And so what opposition is there in your life? If there isn't any, you probably have a lot of questions to ask yourself, especially if you say that you're a Christian. And so here we see these guys are doing exactly what God wants them to do. No to Bithynia, no to Asia. Yes, to, I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to say the things you want me to say. I'm going to do the things you want me to do. And God's using it. He's blessing it. He's changing lives. But Satan's at work too. In verse 19, we go back up and we see what happened. It says, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone. You can just pause right there. First of all, these guys had to know that what happened in the life of that slave girl was for her benefit. They had to know the bondage she was in. They had to know how oppressed she was, the, the, the trappings there, being controlled by another spirit. But they don't care about her. You see what they're upset about? This is their hope is gone, their hope of making money. See, the problem here is that Paul and Silas, really Jesus through Paul and Silas, it touched their hearts. The problem was their hearts were attached to their money. And what had happened was something very personal was taken away from them was their God. Scripture talks about this. You can't have more than one master. This was their, they were the masters of this girl, but they had a master too. And Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you can't serve both God and money. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. You'll serve one, you'll despise the other. And here, they're messing with, Jesus is messing with their God, taking their God. And that's personal. People don't like that when you mess with personal stuff. It's like this. You remember on the playground uh, when you were a kid, how many of you are older siblings? Like you have a little sister or a little brother. How many of you? I'm the oldest in my family. I have a little brother. I would do awful stuff to him. Hey, Alex, if you're watching, I am so sorry at that point that I did that. Uh, I would dangle spit over his face and hold him down on the ground. You know, I'd beat him up and do all kinds of stuff. But you better not mess with him. You, can't, you better not mess with my brother. Like, I might make him eat mud in a couple minutes, but you don't touch him. And you know what that's like? Because it's personal. Do you remember on the playground mama jokes? Somebody says a mama joke. Well, your mama's so dumb, she spent 20 minutes looking at a carton of orange juice because it said concentrate. You know, look at it. I told your mom to make up her mind. She put lipstick on her forehead. You know, you got, gave your mom a penny for her thoughts. She gave me change. <laughs> it's just, they're almost endless. Like, if you, I don't know if you did this on the playground. Some of you are like, what kind of childhood did you have? Being your brother, I'm saying these, saying these things. Your mom's so dumb, they had to burn the school down to get her out of third grade. You know, just, they're just there. It takes her two hours to watch 60 minutes. So just, there's lots of them out there. And they're just funny if we're just saying, like, general mama jokes. But you don't want me talking about your mama. I know I don't want you talking about mine. Jerks, what are you doing for? Probably what you're thinking about me. <laughs> you talk about something that's really personal, you get a response from people. You talk about their family, but you want to go further than that. Talk about their God. That gets people upset. Do you ever hear people say things like, you know, the church, it talks too much about money. Do you know who says that? It's never people that are super generous, by the way. 
It's the people whose God is their money. The church is always talking about they want my money. It's not the people that are open-handedly with, you know, God just, he blesses me with stuff and it flows through me and I use it for the kingdom and use it and I enjoy it. And it's not the people that have freedom with money. It's the people whose God is their money that say that. And so we have a lots of gods in our culture and we see it throughout the scriptures too. You go through the scriptures, you see different people when you mess with their gods, they do stupid stuff. You look at, there's a guy named Pharaoh in the Old Testament. That's his title. It's not his name. Uh, in the Old Testament, he gets in an argument with Moses. He does some ridiculous thing. It doesn't even make sense what he's doing. It's because Jesus is messing with his God. His God is control. You continue to go through. You see another guy in the Old Testament. His name is Saul. He's the first king in Israel. So talk about being popular, right? He's the first king they've ever had. They come up with a song. It's, Saul's killed his thousands. David has tens of thousands. And Saul gets incredibly jealous and does irrational, stupid things. Ruins his kingdom. Because his God is Glory. You see Herod, a guy in the beginning of the book of Matthew, when they announce the birth of Jesus, the wise men come. What happens in the passage we oftentimes don't get to at Christmas time is that he kills all the babies in Bethlehem after that. The reason why he does that, his God is power. Incredibly insecure man. He's afraid that Jesus threatens his power. Here's the deal. Jesus does not allow us to have false gods in the throne of our lives. And many of us do. We have a lot of saviors. And maybe it's not uh, power, and maybe it's not glory, and maybe it's not money. Well, that's a very popular one in our culture. Here's what a, a, a false God is for us. It's the things that we go to for peace. It's the things that we go to for comfort. It's the things that we find hope in. It's the things that we filter our decisions through. And many of us have functional and false saviors. And it might be some of the things I listed. It might be a career. It could be your marriage. It could be all kinds of different things. But Jesus doesn't just let that sit on the throne of your life. He doesn't just mess with it. He removes it. And for these guys, it's money. And he's removed their hope of making this money. And so look at what they do. They don't just sit back and let it go. They respond. But notice in a minute, when I read you what they say the reason is, that's not what they say. They don't say, this guy ruined our opportunity to make money. There's two times in the book of Acts that we see Gentiles opposing Paul and his ministry. Both of them are because the kingdom of God is threatening their money. Here we see it. Verse 19. They seized Paul and Silas because they lost their hope of making money. It was gone. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace because that's where you would take somebody for a court case at that time. The center of the city, the agora, the high point of the city. And they brought them there, dragged them before the authorities. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates. The Roman colony would have two of them. These are the guys who made all the decisions. And said, these men are Jews. It's the first accusation against them. It's not just a description of them. There's a reason why Paul and Silas are here and Luke and Timothy are not. Luke's probably a Gentile. Timothy, we know from reading earlier when we did the circumcision passage before Christmas, that Timothy's half Gentile. These guys probably look Jewish. They're also the leaders, Paul and Silas here. And when he says these guys are Jews, this is the most racist statement he can make at this point. Anti-Semitism, hatred towards Jewish people did not start with Hitler. It started when God chose the Jews to be his people. And people have hated them ever since. And here, they're being accused of being Jews. Claudius, the emperor at this time, has recently uh, issued a command that all the Jews be kicked out of Rome. They're not in Rome. They're in Philippi. They're in a Roman colony, though. He's saying, these, these Jews? So he's appealing not to a case. He's appealing to their emotions and their hatred towards the Jews. He says, these men are Jews. And they're throwing our city into an uproar. Pause. If you were here last week, you know the story from last week. Is this true? Honestly ask that question. Are they throwing the city in an uproar? If you want to look at your Bible, you look at verses 16 through 18. 
They changed the life of one woman. This is not true. This is a false accusation. They didn't rouse up the whole city. One life has been changed. This woman's been set free. And we know the real reason is because of their money. And he says in verse 21, by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Now this is true. Technically, Christianity had not been approved as a Roman religion. The Romans highly value keeping the peace. Pax Romana. Just keep everything status quo. And so then they say that the city's in an uproar. This is what got the city in an uproar. It's actually these two guys that got the city in the uproar. The owners of this slave girl. It says in verse 22, what happens is then mob violence. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. There's never a trial. Paul and Silas are never given an opportunity to defend themselves. There's never an investigation to see whether these facts are true. The mob starts to yell, and then notice what happens. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped, humiliate them, and beaten. Luke then says, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So in order to guard them carefully, he puts them up on the maximum security. What would be like in uh, solitary confinement, only there's two of them in there. So that's not the point. The point is the security of it. Upon receiving such orders, he ordered them to put, be put in the inner cell and fasten their feet in the stocks. And so here they are in a situation. The stocks could be used to expand their torso, to stretch them out. Um, they'd be laying on the floor probably. They've just had their backs severely beaten, the flesh, uh, their backs, and they're being flogged, as Luke describes, severe flogging. They've had their clothes stripped off of them in front of the whole city. They have been falsely accused, never given an opportunity to say anything. Unjustly tried, if you could even call it a trial. And now they find themselves in a situation there's no way they can get out of. It's an impossible situation. Because of the opposition to God's mission. Have you ever been in an impossible situation before? Where you can't fix it? It's like no matter what you do, you can't make your kids love Jesus. You can't make your spouse reconcile with you. You can't, you know, fix cancer. You can't just make it go away. There's times in life where don't you wish you could rewind? Like, don't you wish your life was like on a DVR and you could just back it up? You say something stupid and you wish you could get it back. You can't get those words back. Some, you hurt, somebody gets hurt by someone else. That person can forgive, but it's still there. They, it happened. You can't fix it. You can't undo it. You can't, you're unemployed and you're trying to get a job and you've got the best resume you can put together and you don't know if it makes sense, but you just, you, you've been in possible circumstances. You get bad call from the doctor, like all kinds of, whatever bad stuff can happen. It's you can't control. I want to share two truths with you today about those circumstances. The first one is this. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. He is with you. God is with you in those moments. And I mean, he's with you like he'll never leave you or forsake you, but I mean, he's with you more than just his presence, more than just the vague generalities that sometimes we say, you know, theologians have different terms for God's presence. One of them is his omnipresence. See it in Psalm 139. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I go to the farthest point, you're there. He's everywhere all the time. God's everywhere all the time. There's not a place that God is not. He's omnipresent. There's another kind of presence though, and this is what I'm talking about, his manifest presence. It's when you sense his presence. It's when you realize that he's there. And when you're living on mission for him, there's a realization, a different type of presence. It's like when you see in the scriptures, there's a different presence when people are gathered together than there is when Christians are individual. Now, God indwells us, and he's everywhere all the time. But when Christians gather together, he is there. The kind of presence I'm talking about is what Moses asked for in Exodus chapter 33. When, when God tells him, go, and I'm not going with you. And Moses says, listen, I, we don't want to go unless you go. Now, God was there. He's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. 
But Moses is saying, I want you to come with us so that we sense your presence. I want other people to know that you're with us. I'm talking about the kind of presence. Some of you, you know what it is. You sense it at a specific spot. And somebody I was just at discovering Southbridge in between the services. And they said, we sense God's here at this, this place. You know, there's an anointing is the word that he used. Anointing at this place. You've maybe sensed it at church before. You sense it with certain people that God's presence is in their lives. It's that kind of presence I'm talking about. The kind of presence that Jesus promises if we live on mission. In the Great Commission, most popular passage maybe in the Bible, Matthew chapter 28, and verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, This is what I want you to do as a result of it. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Then verse 19, he says, I'll be with you. The very end of the age. I'm with you. When you're living on mission, I'm with you almost in a special way, in a manifest way. And so if you're facing impossible circumstances... He's with you. If that opposition, those things that have come in your life are as a result of you living on mission for him, he's there. We see that in the Bible. You've heard Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 is a great chapter. You read that. What ends up happening in Daniel chapter 3 is they're living in a culture at this time. as Hebrew guys. They're living in a culture where it would be uh, very acceptable for them to have false gods, just like in our culture. There's all kinds of gods, money, materialism, self-esteem, all that kind of stuff. They could bow down to this false god, but then they know their god. They know the god, the one true god, the god of Israel, the god that we talk about, Yahweh, the Father. And he's not cool with other gods. And so they don't bow down. And because of that, the king gets really upset. And the king says, we're going to throw these guys in the fiery furnace. Takes these three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been renamed, he throws him in the fiery furnace. And then look what happens. Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. You know, the guys around the king, they see what he's like. You just agree with them. Yeah, there were three guys. And look what he says, verse 25. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like, and this is a pagan king, a son of the gods. It was God himself. It was the angel of the Lord. God was with them. The impossible circumstances, living on mission, stepping out by faith, doing what God said. I mean, things were easy. Things went bad. They got thrown into a fiery furnace. God was with them. He's with you. He's with me. I was reading a story about back in October. Some of you may have seen this. It was on every major news outlet. Um, at the time, it was on all the news channels. And so if you read the paper or any of those things, what ended up happening is in New York City, there was a confrontation between a young couple and a group of bikers. I don't know if you saw that or not. Um, this young couple was driving a big black SUV, and they were on their way to celebrate their wedding anniversary. And the scene that I saw on the surveillance cameras was probably at 20, 30, I'm guessing, I didn't count them, uh, motorcycles surrounding this SUV. And they get upset. Apparently, they had a conflict on the road before that, and both parties were, were not happy. The couple in the SUV took off. They ended up running over one of the guys on one of the motorcycles. So obviously, the, the bikers were very upset. They chased him down. He ends up getting caught in traffic in Manhattan. So the bikers get off their motorcycles. One of them takes his helmet off, breaks the window open on the SUV, drags the driver out of the car, begins to beat him with the helmet, cut him with a knife, and the other guys are, are beating him too. And there's all these people just standing around watching this. They opened the door uh, for the wife, and they, the way they described it is the very big biker grabbed a hold of it, the wife and said, you're going to get it too. And the crowd was saying, no, no, not the woman, not the woman. But nobody did anything. Well, there's this one guy, he stepped out, and he just stepped in between the guy that was hitting that young man with a helmet, this 33-year-old guy with a helmet, 
holds his hand out. In the other hand, he's holding a manila folder. Pretty threatening, right? A manila folder. I'm going to give you a paper cut. You know, he's standing there. He said, that's enough. It's enough. It's done. They let the girl go. He didn't know if they'd do this. He described in the moment what it was like. It's a very tense moment. He's asked about it, and what you may not have seen, is he says, I felt God's presence. And God was there in the moment. You step out by faith. The guy was on his way to church. I don't know his story, whether he's a believer or not, but he said, I sense God's presence. Possible circumstances? Opposition? God's there. But not just is God there. Let me tell you the second truth. The second truth is this. He will not give you more than he can handle. He will not give you more than he can handle. Notice I didn't say more than we can handle. Because there are times where the things that are going to come into our lives that we can't handle them. And we don't know what to do with them. I remember one time preaching on that very topic. We were doing a series back in 2010 called Lies We Live By. Different things that can ruin our faith. And there are a lot of people that believe this false statement about God that he will never give us more than we can handle. That's not true. And when it happens in your life, and you believe that truth, it can ruin your faith. And we were preaching to the reason why that message sticks out in my mind at all. You know, think of how many messages I've preached since 2010 until now. Believe it or not, I don't remember everyone. <laughs> you preach them. You're supposed to. Sorry, I don't. That one sticks out. And I'll tell you the reason why that one sticks out is because in preparation, what ended up happening? You know, I was traveling from Dallas, Texas to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was studying for this message, and I had to get some work done on the plane. I'm extroverted. I like to talk to people. A lot of times I don't like to talk to people on the plane, but sometimes I'm in the mood. It's kind of hit or miss. When I have a lot of work to do, I'm focused on the task. And so I, I got on the plane early, and I tried to set it up to be as uninviting as possible. I don't know if that's the right word, but anyway, I had my books all out, and it was clear I was doing something at that moment. Guy sits down next to me on the plane. He starts talking casually, talking. I was like, hey, yeah, it was great. Nice to meet you. You live in Raleigh. Okay, cool. And I pull out my book. If you pull out a commentary that says 2 Corinthians on it, most people will leave you alone. Because they know at that moment, if I'm talking to him, he's going to talk to me about the Bible. I don't want to talk about the Bible. So they don't do that. Well, this guy keeps talking to me. Eventually he says, oh, that looks like a great book you're reading. That's like my defense. What are you talking about? Close my Bible. He starts talking. It turns out this guy's a solid Christian. So I'm thinking to myself, God, if you're going to have me talk to somebody on a plane, can they at least be a non-believer? Like I got eternity to hang out with this guy. Okay. <laughs> but can they at least be a non-believer? This guy starts talking to me. So I realize I'm in. Like there's nothing I'm going to do about it. He was wanting to talk. We're talking. I, said, I asked a question. I said, uh, so you have any kids? He's a little older than me, gentleman. He said, I had a son who uh, turned 30 in a couple weeks, but he passed away recently. And so I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm pastor mode. I'm so, how can I comfort you? And talking to him, he said, well, maybe you saw my story in the newspaper. I'm like, I had no idea what he was talking about. And he ended up telling me, he said, we tried to raise our son in the Lord and we taught him the Bible, and we, we told him the truths, but he got involved in drugs, and he got involved with the wrong people, and made all these bad decisions. He started to threaten my wife and I, and then he started telling me about this evening where his son came after him, and he thought his life was in danger. He ended up shooting his own son. And uh, I knew at that moment this wasn't going to be a short conversation. And we began to talk for the next two and a half hours. Every time he would talk about that night or he'd talk about his son, he'd start to tear up. And he'd pause. And one time he, he said to me, he said, you know, the whole thing, you know what our verse was? It was a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. That's where we get the idea that God won't give us more than we can handle. He's talking about sin and temptation. He's not talking about everything. He says, we always said, God won't give us more than we can handle. And then he looked at me and he said, Scott, this is more than we can handle. 
Some of you know what it's like to have more than you can handle. Paul knew what it was like to have more than he could handle. He maybe did as he's sitting in this prison cell right here. We know before this passage, he wasn't allowed to go to Asia. There's another time when he was able to go to Asia. He writes about it to 2 Corinthians. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, more than we could handle. Far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Have you ever been there? You better just take me. It's better if this is over. I'd rather it was ending than I'd have to go through this. Some of you have been there. Some of you tried to do something about it. Paul's saying, I'm not superhuman. I've been there. I know what that's like. He says in verse 9, Indeed, our hearts felt the sentence of death. It's as if it was time. But here's why it happened. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves because it's more than we could handle. But on God who raises the dead because there's no such thing as more than he can handle. So not only is God with them in the pit of this dungeon and this prison, he's able to be trusted in this moment because it's not more than he can handle. And he's with you and whatever you're going through. And I don't know what you're going through but he can be trusted. And he uses those things ultimately to develop our relationship with him. So we trust him more. He takes those opposition. There will be opposition in your life if you're following Christ. He takes that opposition and he uses it as an opportunity to do some of his best work. See, God takes our opposition. He uses it as an opportunity to do some of his best work. And so you have opposition in your life before you ask him to take it away, before you just ask that things to be easier, to be smooth. I'm doing things your way. Would you do them my way? Would you answer my wishes like you're a genie in the bottle? Well, maybe he wants to use that opposition as an opportunity to work in your life or in the life of those around you. Now, before we jump back on the passage, remember what's happened with these guys and try and put yourself in the passage. Falsely accused. Somebody says something about you that's not true. Dragged to court. There is no trial, unjustly tried, beaten, stripped naked, thrown into prison, maximum security. You're not getting out. What do you do? God, I serve you and this is what I get. I sacrifice and then here's how it happens. I left my career. Think these guys, Silas and Paul. I leave my career, my profession to go do this for you and I end up here. That's I'm real effective here, God. Like you don't know what you're doing. What would you do? Look what these guys do. Verse 25, Paul and Silas. About midnight, people didn't stay up till midnight then. There were no infomercials, by the way. About midnight, they probably can't sleep because they've been beaten. You can't lay down on a back that's been so severely flogged. But Paul and Silas, look what they were doing. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. (laughs) What? What hymns were they singing at this moment? How great thou art. How great thou art. I might be singing something like, bring fire on their heads. Like, what are you singing at that moment? Amazing grace. None of those things have been written, by the way. None of the hymns that we think of when we read something like this. You know what they're probably singing? They're probably singing the Psalms. Have you read the Psalms? Psalm 27. Psalm 42, 43. Psalm 88. Psalm 22. Psalm 3. Some of the psalms are written out of incredible despair. 
I remember my wife and I one time going through, the, at the moment, the darkest moment of our lives, the biggest spiritual battle we had ever been through. We were riding in the car. Only a couple people in the world knew what was happening in our lives. I'm riding in the car to get away from everybody, and we're listening to a CD, and the CD is playing Psalm 3-3. You know that one? It says, For thou, O Lord, art a shield to me, my glory and the lifter of my head. For thou, Lord, are a shield. You, you're a protector around me. Nothing can touch me that you don't allow. And you're my glory, and you lift my head. It's not natural for me to look to you. But you be the lifter of my head. You bring me confidence in you. You bring me back to you. You give me the trust. For thou, O Lord, are a shield to me, the glory and the lifter of my head. At that moment, my wife turned the radio off right then. And uh, she looked at me and she said, Scott, Satan's not going to get the victory in this. For us, that was a life-changing moment. For us, that was a, a moment where our trust grew as a couple, individually, in the Lord. For thou, O Lord, art a shield to me, my glory and the lifter of my head. What happens here in this jail cell is not natural. This is supernatural. Paul and Silas are not superhumans. We know what they're like. They feel a sense of death too. They know the pressure of this. They know they can't handle this stuff. But God gives them, by his grace, his power, his ability, he lifts their heads. And the other prisoners are listening in verse 25. Look what happens next, verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. He was doing a good job. And jailer woke up. He knew they weren't getting out. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself. There was a, a law, it's called the Code of Justinian, where if a prisoner, we see it later, we've seen it earlier, when uh, Peter uh, was escaped prison, Acts chapter 12, they killed the guy. And that's what he thinks is going to happen, is that uh, what, the rule was this, if you let prisoners go as the jailer, then you're sentenced to their sentence, whatever it was. And so there are probably some guys here, it wasn't just Paul and Silas, that had capital punishment coming. He's willing to take his own life. He's hopeless. He sees no way out of this. He feels the sense of death in his own heart. He's at that moment now. He's ready to kill himself. Then verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Some people make the mistake of reading this passage and thinking it's a jailbreak story. No one escapes from prison in this passage. They go back the next day. No one gets out of jail here. I love a good jailbreak story. I think it's great. The intricacies and all the details, and you wonder if they're guilty anyways, and you want them to, it's like you want them to get out, and there's movies or whatever, and it's like, they're bad guys, and so you're trying to think through all that. There are jailbreak stories in the Bible, guys that are falsely accused as well. This isn't one of them. Paul and Silas are free men, free in Christ, real freedom, and, and the person that's going to be set free, this story is better than a jailbreak story, because the jailer's going to be set free. Look at what happens next. It says that the jailer called for lights. He's got other guards there with him. He says, turn the lights on. They turned the lights on. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then brought them out and asked them the most important question anyone can ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. That's the question we all have to ask. He's not talking about saved from his circumstances. How do I save my job? No, he's fine with all that because the prisoners are still there. Lock the doors and the other guys. He brings Paul and Silas out. I'll tell you something. It doesn't matter what you think all through your life. At the moment when you know you're going to die, you're no longer an atheist. Everybody knows at that moment they're about to meet their creator. And it's in that moment, we don't know what this guy believed up until this moment. 
most people come to the realization that what I've done is not good enough. And so he's saying, what must I do to be delivered, saved from the things that I've already done? Notice what Paul and Silas say. They replied, you don't do anything. It's already been done on the cross. It is finished. You believe, you believe that Christ was murdered and raised from the dead. You confess with your mouth, he's Lord, and you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and while we were yet sinners, like Adam, because he's leading worship, told us, well, we were God's enemy. We weren't just like opposed to him in some way of we disagreed about something. We were his enemy. For a good man, some people might attempt to think about dying. You might die for your friend. You might give your heart to some of your spouse, somebody that you love, but not your enemy. Well, we were enemies to Christ. He died for us. We were not somebody he just wanted on his team, and so he was recruiting us in. The most heinous crime in all of human history is the Son of God was murdered, and God took that as an opportunity to do some of his best work, redemption. Here, this guy's willing to kill himself. He's about to die, and then he realizes God used it as an opportunity to do some of his best work, redemption. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your own household, and you'll be saved. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord. They began to explain what that meant. That meant he's Lord. That means no other gods. You bow your knee to him as Lord. You believe in him and what he's done. More than just facts in your head, you place your faith. The demons believe and shudder. We don't know what verses they said, but they share with him the explanation of the gospel. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, and he and his whole house had trusted Christ. And at that hour, verse 33, this is special. The jailer took them and washed their wounds, some of which he may have inflicted. Then immediately he and his family were baptized. They made a profession of faith, trusted Christ, then let the world know. There might have been still people outside from the earthquake. They're baptized. And then get this, this is the thrust of the passage. The the jailer, verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he, talking about the jailer, was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. The next day they go back to jail, by the way. Paul and Silas. But if you want an illustration of an opportunity, God using opposition as an opportunity to transform a life, to do his best work, the jailer's it. And there's one word that gives you the thrust of this passage, a three-letter word. It's in verse 34, joy. A couple minutes earlier, the guy's willing to take his life. He felt the sentence of death in his heart, the heaviness of that. Then he turns his life over to God, realizes there's nothing God can't handle. Trust him. I got joy. I got changed his life. I don't know what opposition's in your life. But what does God want to do? How does God want to change your life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, thankful uh, that as the clay that you, the potter, the creator, desires to know us and to love us. And we are in your hands. We want you to shape us and mold us. We know you don't want to ruin us, but we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. That your son Jesus came, that we could have life and have it to the fullest. I pray if there's any here that need to know your son Jesus, that right now would be the moment of salvation. They place their faith in your son at this very moment. There's nothing more important than doing that. And they believe in their hearts that you died for them, that you came while they were rebellious to you, and that you died. And they would surrender their lives to you, asking you to be God, asking you to be Savior, the one that they go to for peace, for comfort, for salvation, to be Lord. And I pray as those of us that are followers of yours that have put other things on the throne of our life, you'd forgive us, please. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.